Okay, so today we're going to be reading 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. So if you have one of those blue Bibles, then that's page 1,223, but it should also be on the screen behind me. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen. Hi, everyone. Good to see you all. Thank you, Kat, for the Bible reading and Amanda for the kids' spot. I would, um, last, this is the second week, uh, of our series in called Compelled, about how Christ's love compels us in a good way, not under compulsion or a bad thing, but to compel us to be a Jesus-shaped community. We saw how Jesus is everything last week. We're never going to stop talking about Jesus. Uh, and this week, we're going to look at what it means to be a Jesus-shaped community. Next week, how do we take Jesus into our communities too, wherever we find ourselves? So I, w- I would think um, it's fair to say that our culture, as a general rule, struggles with intimacy and community. And deep down, I bet some of you do as well. Um, Cheryl Turkle, I found a quote from her this week, a sucker analyst writes in her book, Alone Together, that we are lonely, but we're fearful of intimacy. It's common to see entire tables at a cafe tethered to their phones, not in conversation with each other. Um, Teenagers uh, are becoming anxious over live texting, which is another way of saying a phone call, um, because they don't know what to say. When you put me on the spot and I have to speak to you, it's hard, it's fearful. What if I get it wrong? Whereas if I have a screen in front of me, I can take time, think about it, reply. Yet ironically, if no one gets back to us quickly and they see that we've seen what we've said, we also feel upset and insecure as well. We're increasingly losing the art of conversation and being able to relate to people face-to-face. So then with all these cultural issues and just the background of where we live and swim in every day as just people, then you come to church and this idea of committing to a Christian community, it seems really strange. It's a challenge because it just seems culturally so incompatible. I mean, life is hard enough to relate to people who are like me, who I like, who are my friends, let alone most of you who are not like me, who I've never grown up with, who I've met recently, and and suddenly I'm called to be in a community with you and do life with you. That's actually really fearful. That's hard. So why would you even bother going to church and commit to that? Why should you not just sit at home and listen to your favorite preacher on a podcast, read your Bible, and um, have a great prayer session in your car every day on the way to work? So, that's what we're going to explore today. Why we're going to be a Jesus-shaped community and what that means for you and me. It's important to know as we begin that church did not start with Peter, who wrote this book of the Bible, who was an eyewitness account of Jesus. He did not say, hey, Paul, hey, you love Jesus, I love Jesus, let's get together for one hour and hang out in the week and talk about Jesus' stuff and pray and sing songs. It's not how it began. You see, God is actually gathering God. He's always desired to gather a people for himself 
drawing them out of the world through his electing, redeeming, justifying, renewing grace into the Trinity, a Trinitarian, the Trinity God, Father, Son, Spirit. We're drawn into that relationship out of the world into him. God has always done that. He's a gathering God. The first time, in fact, that God gathered his people was on Mount Sinai in Exodus. When Jesus ascended, he then sent the Spirit of God into our lives so we would be the dwelling place of God while on earth, which means believers in Jesus are the people where God rests in and rules over, you see. And then church is the gathering of people just like that. The Greek word ecclesia just means gathering of people who are already believers of Jesus, people with God's rule over them. So the question is, how do we be a Jesus-shaped community then in all of our life? If we're believers, we've got the Spirit of God over us, in us, what, what, what does gathering look like? What does that mean? And 1 Peter is actually very helpful in this. Uh, we could have gone to Ephesians 4, which also explains that, or even Hebrews 3 or 10. But I think Peter's helpful, and I wanted to sit in Peter for these last two weeks because he writes this with a framework of suffering in mind. And he encourages the suffering community to not neglect meeting together and to show them what it looks like to meet together as they suffer in any season of life. So I've broken this up into three sections uh, to explain this. We have the perspective we need in verse 4 or 7. Uh, then we have the purpose, the overarching purpose for why we would uh, do this. And then we have the practical, uh, the practice we engage in. So the perspective and the purpose and the practice. And then we're going to finish with a few tangible ways that this looks like for us in our own context. So Peter begins and he says in verse uh, 7, the end of all things is near. And so much like being a spiritual exile from chapter 1 verse 1, Peter reminds us that we're time exiles as well. You see, the Christian does not measure their life in terms of who's the prime minister or what year they're in. Well, we do. We live in a world and that's very helpful to know that. But actually, Peter's thinking in terms of redemptive history when he says this. It's a way of saying the narrative God has been speaking and telling about his purpose and his goal for creation from the beginning of creation all the way to the very end. And this drama of creation with creation and fall and redemption and restoration, four key moments. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, right now, you and me, we're living in the redemption period. And so there's still one final act that God is about to publish, the restoration of all things under King Jesus. And that's why the end of all things is near or at hand. And because it's God's drama, it's not something you put a time limit on. It's about the playwright's purpose being fulfilled, not about a linear progression towards a date or a season or a month or a year, you see. And because there's one more final act to go, it has a bearing on how we live in the here and now. Look at the next part. Therefore, he says, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. It's not so much that you may pray or that you can't pray. It's more of this enables you to pray rightly with the right perspective. See, because of Jesus, we have this right perspective in life that's not cloudy or unsure anymore. Be alert. Have a clear mind that Jesus gives. And prayer now is put into its proper place. We have clarity on the God whom history revolves around, so we pray in the right frame of mind to him. In one sense, you and me have found a role in life now, in the gospel. And we play to the playwright when we have clarity that he brings. You see, prayer is a purpose, Peter's helping us see. It's not a task. It's a way to navigate life with the God we follow. Prayer orientates us to the God of time, to the God of history, 
with the right perspective to live his agenda in his world. And then in 4.11, at the very end, we see the purpose clarified. You need this perspective, but here's the purpose. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And he bookends this section by reminding us the church community should, must, in fact, glorify God. First question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, there's a mouthful, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so our ultimate purpose in church is to bring glory to God through Jesus. It's actually what Jesus did. Jesus does everything for the glory of God. God does everything for the glory of God. And it's now your purpose and my purpose that we've been saved for individually and then collectively as a group. Which means to live in a community without that purpose deflects the glory of God, which he deserves, and puts it on you. And that's just a horrible place to live. And so without that proper perspective and without that purpose firmly in mind, what happens is there's no urgency in proclaiming the gospel to anyone. You get very busy, but you don't have a clear purpose. And we sacrifice the core business of the church of being a word people. By that I mean reading and prayer and speaking the gospel to one another. Those things slide off. And so the perspective we need is the end of all things is at hand. We have the overall purpose to the glory and praise of God with prayer as the alignment to those things. And in between is the practice. Above all, love each other deeply, verse 8, because love covers a multitude of sins. And this is where it gets a little bit harder. I, I think no one here would disagree with the first two points. Yes, the perspective, the end of all things is here, for the glory of God. But suddenly when those are framed, and then Peter now tells us, here's how I want you guys to kick around and do life with one another. This is where it gets a little bit confronting. So understand firstly that love actually can't pay the price for our sin. Sorry, my love for you can't pay the price for your sin. Only Jesus' love for us in his death and resurrection can do that. His love forgives all our sin. His love makes us lovely and able to love others. And this multitude of sins Peter mentions is any large number, simply anything big, meaning love covers any sin always. The disciples of Jesus once asked him, hey, Jesus, um, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Once, twice, three, four, seven? Pick a number. What would you have to... What would someone have to say or do to you in which you'd not forgive them? Or that you'd hold that sin in a Google Doc ready to pull out at any moment they hurt you just to remind them, you did this. Or how many times will someone sin until you've just had enough and I can't handle it? Like, you should be doing better and trying harder. You're in a pattern of sin and I'm sick of you sinning because it bothers me and I'm not going to forgive you that time because you need to learn a lesson and if I forgive you, it's just cheap grace and it's, it's not going to do anything. So what did Jesus say? Did he say, try harder? Or eight? He actually went as high as you can go. He said seven times 77, meaning always, often, whenever, because grace is limitless. And until we grasp that in the gospel of Jesus, he died for us while we were still his enemies, and that right now Jesus stands before the Father in his presence, pleading with God to forgive you and me by his own wounds, not by anything you can do. Until we see that, you cannot love one another enough to cover over any of their sins, let alone a multitude of sins. 
You see, the gospel challenges us in community to not hold sin over someone else, to desire their best, to love them, to want the best for them in Christ, because Jesus has promised to no more, no more hold your sin against you in his wounds. And that love is the guiding principle for our community. And then Peter gives four ways that love colors our community. He says, oh, um, I didn't have the verse written down. 9 to 11, they're the ones who are kicking around in now. So he says, offer hospitality. And this is, this is wonderful. It literally means love strangers. It has the idea of welcoming people different from ourselves. And that's the normal way the Bible speaks about hospitality too. It's not a, we don't live in a pirate community. What do I mean? Pirates love one another, don't they? They have a ship with crew and a captain and they kick around and they love each other enough to not kill each other too much and they find someone else and they rob them, they steal, they plunder, they gossip, they take stuff, they're unkind, they're snarky, they're mean, they stab you in the back for stuff, but they love their crew. And we are not saved to a pirate life. It's welcoming those different from us with joy and for their benefit, not to get something from them like a pirate would, you see. And the Bible is serious about this. It's not enough to like people. We've been saved to be hospitable people. More than a meal, it's an attitude of welcome. Notice too, Peter calls us, to, calls us all to do this. Offer hospitality to one another. In a moment, he's going to celebrate the diversity in the church, but here he's helping us see that everyone is to be welcoming. And the simple truth and why we are going to be hospitable here is that God has been hospitable to us while living as his enemies God came and saved us. He opened the door and the invitation to his presence. And as we enjoy the hospitality of God, we extend that to others like Jesus has done for us. What this means is that we're hospitable in every way that God has gifted us to be. And that's the next part. As each has received God's grace, use the various skills and gifts and abilities we have been given to throw God's grace around to other people. Now, Peter, and in fact the New Testament, does not imply that you have one gift, and only one gift. There are actually a variety of them, just as God's grace is richly varied. Varied, thank you, varied. Brilliant. As God's grace is varied, so too is the gifts in his church. God's purpose is that we serve one another, however you can, with all the grace that he supplies. Peter's helping us see you come... And you exist and you be with an attitude willing to serve one another, you see. And then as varied as the church is, we meet the needs of the others. And as we do that, we begin to see what I can and what I can't do. But then I know who can do that and meet their needs, you see. And at different times and in different ways, I will serve you, you will serve me. But if I aim to meet your needs and you aim to meet my needs, our needs are going to be met, you see. Sometimes I hear people say, and maybe this is you, I've been serving people for so long and no one cares for me. No no one cares for me the same way that I care for them. I've given everything to these people and I just seem to be flat and dry and no, no one's actually caring for me in all of this. And if I could say two things gently to that mindset, if I can. The first thing is, could you check your motive for why you're serving in the first place? 
Because it would sound to me, if that's your heart, if that's your mindset, it would sound to me as if you're serving to get your identity, not the fact you have one in Jesus already. It sounds to me like you need people to value you for what you can do, and if you don't have it, if you don't have them to affirm you and what you can do, you feel ripped off and you feel like you have no purpose. And that thinking, what happens is it slowly breeds what I call a saviour mentality. Where you think you have to serve others because no one else does it the best way like I can. No one knows the situation like I do, therefore I have to be that particular person. Or you think I have to do this particular thing in the church because that's how God has gifted me only that way and I must do this and if I don't, then I don't feel like I'm contributing. I'm not actually someone whom God loves anymore or I can't be used by him. And you've forgotten the gospel actually creates humility. But that's a dangerous place to be. Because you actually aren't serving the other person in love. You're serving to be loved. And often you do more damage than good because you're serving out of your hurts and your needs, not out of the grace that God supplies. So firstly, can you please check your motive? And the second thing is, if you rest in Jesus, then there is no limit to what you will do. And as I say that, some of you don't like to hear that. Jesus served you, though, by dying for you. There was no limit to that. And of course you need wisdom to not overserve or to not carry on someone's issue like it's yours. Bearing one another's burdens does not mean let that issue become your issue or anything. And there are seasons in life when some of you will be more able to serve than others for so many reasons, and that's fine, and you should identify them and adjust accordingly. That is good. And, and, and ultimately, if your service is in response to God's grace for you, then as grace has no limit, then so your service to others will not be limited or bound either. And so maybe... You need to repent from your unbelief and rediscover the joy of serving from the grace and the strength, as Peter says, that God supplies. Not your own strength, not to get an identity, but because you have one, a full one, already in him. May you do that. So moving on, Peter says, speak as if you're speaking the words of God. And now this is a general term for speech. It's broader than preaching or teaching or evangelism. It's everyday speech we say to each other. It doesn't mean that you claim that you have the words of God as if you are some infallible person now. Everything you say drips with the words of grace and Jesus all the time. It would be nice if that was the case, but it's not actually going to happen. In reality, the word of God is the Scriptures, which means we speak God's word into all the lives of others at any time of the day. Preaching is one part of that, as I'm doing to you right now, but by preaching by its very nature isn't actually going to be there at every moment of your life. What do I mean? On a Friday afternoon this week, when your boss tells you to do something morally dicey, preaching is not there. Or when you struggle with porn on Wednesday night, preaching is not there. Or when you don't know how to care for someone after the service, it looks a little bit sad, what do you do? Well, God's Spirit's there. So is God's Word, and so are other believers, which means the Spirit and others should constantly pull us back to the Word of God with our words, you see. And we do that, we live this way, for the purpose of glorifying God, 4.11. So you see, service and community and hospitality, speaking God's word, loving others, it's not always going to be glorious at times, but it is God-glorifying. Don't forget that. Our aim is not the glory of me or you, but making Jesus look as he is in the lives of unbelievers and in our community. And one day you will hear from Jesus these words, whose, actually, whose opinion of you in whose eyes 
really counts. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So let's recap. Perspective we need is that the end is near. Therefore, we live in a practical way in the collected, called-out community called church for the purpose of glorifying God. And so that means three things for us as we close. We're going to be word people here, we're going to be serving people, and we're going to be gathered people. Word people, serving people, gathered people. So word people, we're going to read, we're going to pray, we're going to have speech that's flavoured with the gospel. If you haven't started the Bible reading plan yet this year, there's some at the welcome table, they're in the weekly email, grab it, start it. There's no better time like now or tomorrow morning to do that. We speak the gospel to each other to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel we need each week because that untangles us from the lies, from the deception that we kick around and we believe in all week. So we're word people. It's the foundation of all. Everything is from the word. And then we come ready to serve one another. It happens organically with our words because the gospel's words are service as well. It's being gracious to one another. It's in a structured way through teams that we do at church to make this happen, through logistics and welcome and morning tea. We serve each other in those ways. And we have those teams in place to facilitate community. We don't put signs out because we want to give Steamer something to do as a ministry apprentice. We don't want to make you busy by making morning tea or we, don't, we want to have nice coffee and food. We care about that. Not because it's an end of themselves, not because a cup of coffee will save anyone, maybe save you from tiredness, but it won't save you in the way Jesus does. But they show the world how a Jesus-shaped community is like so we can take barriers away and we can proclaim the gospel to everyone. That's why we do those things. That's the purpose. It's not a task, it's a purpose. It means we're intentional about disciple-making shaping our community so that that happens through the cups of coffee and the biscuits and having signs. So we serve. And we're a gathered people. We're not just a Sunday thing. Our community groups are the engine room of where one anothering of living like this happens. The one reason why we meet in the week is so important is for that reason. We need people to speak the truth of Jesus to my life every day lest we deceive and grow hard hearts. You see, because in a small group, I get to learn your story. You get to learn mine. We open the Bible, we chat, we pray, we read, we let it shape our lives. We care for one another with words of grace, with practical ways, with meals, with service. We mature in that environment. And so as we close, I know that I've been speaking very much to those who are part of the church through Jesus already. A lot of you here are like that. And praise God. But if you've been sitting here thinking, I'm not that, you can be. We want to welcome you as a brother and sister in Christ. You don't have to live, go through life alone, live alone. This family right here, of everyone here, we're not perfect. We're broken people saved by a perfect Savior. And you can have Jesus and his family too, if you repent from your sins and put your trust in him. Call upon Jesus and you will be saved. And you'll be part of the church. And so, you need us, we need you. We're family. Let's do community together, flawed as we are, never going to get it perfect, but let's keep pressing into the God of all grace each time we meet. I'm going to pray, and the band is going to come back up and lead us through another song, and then I'm going to get back up here again. I'm going to keep on talking um, about three very practical ways this looks in our community right now for us.
So let's pray and then Ben, come on up. Father God, thank you that you are the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, who has existed from eternity past and will exist always forever into eternity. And in your grace and kindness, you have made us for yourself and you draw us into a relationship with you through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that you make us your gathered people, where you rule and reign over us, where you indwell us with your spirit, you give us your word, you empower us to be your people in the world to proclaim you. And as we do that, as our purpose is clarified, that we're doing it for your glory, the end of all things is near. Help us to be the community of people that love one another, that have a community that is shaped by the word, that our first things in life that actually matter is the gospel. And we speak that to one another. Help us, Lord, to be in a community that serves for the right reasons to proclaim your name to one another. Help us to put others' needs first. And so, Jesus, as you have done that for us, as you have served us, as you loved us first, may we love one another in all the strength, with all the grace that you supply. In your name be praised. Amen.